On weeks like these, major national headlines threaten to overshadow local news. But that's not a cause for concern in the Times Union newsroom. It's actually a time for our local journalists to really shine, because they've been working around the clock to sort out how all these national stories impact us here in the capital region. On this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over this week's top stories. You saw trees yanked up by their roots, you know, tree and root ball all leaning up against houses. We'll learn more about a new study that estimates more than 4,000 children in New York have lost a parent or guardian to COVID-19. You know, this pandemic is still going on and there will still be more children who lose parents. And we'll hear about the life of an iconic local priest whose revolutionary efforts to help ex-inmates and alcoholics have left a lasting impact on the region. He's led an amazing, remarkable life that could probably be made into, oh, three or four movies. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Let's start with a look at what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again with Times Union editor Casey Seiler. It has been a dizzying news week, uh, especially for those of us in the newsroom. Um, let's uh, let's see if we can go through everything and, and get it all in. Uh, we're going to start with the death of Joe Bruno, who has been an Albany political powerhouse for longer than I've been alive. Give us kind of a, a look at his life and, and what he kind of meant to the region. Joe Bruno, who was the state Senate's majority leader, a Republican, for um, about 14 years, a remarkable life that um, sums up kind of a lot about politics in New York and really in the country in the sense that he got a lot of good done, especially for the capital region. And his career, it's fair to say, ended amid sort of vast scandal. Born in Glens Falls, uh, a hard scrabble youth, a boxer. You know the headline on the front page of the Times Union the day after he, after we got word that he passed away was the fighter, and I think that was appropriate. Elected in the mid seventies to the Senate, and then became the leader of the conference. Um, and this is, of course, back when during the era when Republican control of the Senate was pretty much inviolate. In 1994, he overthrew a Long Islander, you know, Long Island and upstate being the two Republican bastions of power or used to be, and ran the Senate with great force for 14 years, which is a pretty remarkable run. Brought a a lot of development to the capital region. Global foundries was largely due because he managed to throw his weight around, you know, the huge chip fab plant in his district, of course. Anybody who's ever taken their children or or their loved ones to a, a Valley Cats game at Hudson Valley Community College, you know, there's a reason why that stadium is known as the Joe. It's named after him, and it was his political will that really made it happen. 
But of course, he announced his retirement from politics just about seven months before he was indicted by federal prosecutors who managed to convict him um, in a trial of using his office basically to enrich himself. Those convictions were reversed after a Supreme Court decision. On retrial on those two charges, he was acquitted, which was, I think he stated, was the fight of his life, you know, taking on the, the power of the, uh, of the Department of Justice and coming out the winner, while at the same time, his trials revealed practices within his office and, of course, his private business as sort of a business consultant that were uh, questionable, to put it lightly. He was, he was one of those outsized political figures that New York used to produce in, in greater number than it does right now, but they're, they're still out there. Sounds like a complicated but memorable guy. Uh, moving on, we had some crazy weather yesterday. Uh, what was the fallout from that? Yeah, this was on Wednesday afternoon when uh, fast-moving storms came through, bringing uh, with them a lot of rain, but even more wind. And as we talk right now, I think just under 100,000 people across the capital region are still without power. You saw trees yanked up by their roots, you know, tree and root ball all leaning up against houses or collapsing into houses. Traffic was snarled, but it's the power outages, of course, within the larger context of the pandemic that is tough for people to take. So just imagine you're already dealing with sort of pandemic restrictions. Your kids might be home because their school their school has gone all remote. And now on top of this, you don't have any power. You really feel for the level of anxiety that already stressed people are feeling because of an event like this. And of course, it isn't it isn't even winter yet, Jess. No, that's still a couple months away. Yeah, that is a that is a lot to take on. And uh, if you haven't already seen it out your window, you can see pictures of some of the damage over at timesunion.com. Back to politics for a second. Uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo had his first press conference from the Red Room in what I'm taking as several weeks or months. The virus goes up. The leaves come down, the virus goes up. They've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, They predicted this, and on this prediction, they happen to be right. To announce uh, some of the surges in COVID in Brooklyn, to announce some new regulations. Can you kind of give us a summary of what he laid out? The governor announced that in an attempt to flatten the curve of what are alarming increases in cases of positivity about four or five times what the rest of the state, you know, level of positive cases are they were moving to a much more strict series of uh, shutdowns, of restrictions in the size of public gatherings for certain communities. And there was a red, orange, and yellow level of alarm based on how heavy the positivity rate is in a given neighborhood. Now, there was controversy because many of these hotspots are in Orthodox Jewish communities. The way that these new restrictions were communicated in a very tough tone from the governor was seen by uh, some leaders within those communities, uh, including some who had previously been sort of communicating with the governor's office in a a much more kind of placid way. There were accusations that 
accusations of echoes of uh, far more unpleasant uh, interactions between governments and Jewish communities. Let me just put it that way. There were demonstrations in the street in some communities. Uh, fires were set. A reporter was uh, was kind of swarmed by a group of young men in one community. It was it was fairly alarming, and um, uh, I don't see that situation getting any better in the coming days. Because, in addition to having people behaving not in line with good healthcare policy, now you've got them angry as well, and that is uh, often a bad combination. Yes, it definitely sounds like a tense situation. But speaking of COVID fallout, uh, the mayors of Albany and Schenectady, I believe, are now self-quarantining because they might have possibly been exposed. There was a gathering of uh, of the state's mayors in Syracuse, which probably in retrospect, people are going to be wondering if that was a, a really good idea. Today on Thursday brings news that the mayor of Binghamton uh, has tested positive. So anybody who had a conversation with the mayor of Binghamton or sat next to him at that gathering, you know, is potentially exposed. So it's similar to what we're hearing out of the White House that these these events, and I have no doubt that the assembled mayors in Syracuse were using you know fairly good social distancing protocols, and I'm sure that most, if not all of them, were wearing masks. But at the same time, um, I think there's going to be some hard thinking about whether or not it would have been better to just make this a Zoom call. Now, speaking of the White House, this is another nice segue. President Trump, obviously diagnosed with COVID-19 last week, has been taking uh, an experimental drug that's being produced right here in the capital region. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? With Generon Pharmaceuticals, that has its uh, a large, almost 70-acre uh, manufacturing facility in East Greenbush, produced this experimental therapeutic that the president was given when he was at Walter Reed. He put out a pretty singular, even for him, video on Wednesday afternoon in which he kept referring to the drug as Regeneron. That is not the name of the drug itself. That's the name of the company. And he likened it to more than just a therapeutic, that it was a cure and fast upon the heels of you know that somewhat uh, scientifically dubious assertion by the president, Regeneron asked for fast-track approval of the same drug from the FDA. And one imagines that there will be heavy pressure placed upon the FDA to make that happen. Chris Bragg and Ed McKinley, both on our Statehouse team, are uh, taking an expanded look at, uh, at Regeneron that will be on timesunion.com. And I, uh, I recommend people check that out. And one final bit of news, uh, Regal Cinemas, which uh, operates out of Crossgates and other places in the capital region, has announced that it will be closing its theaters indefinitely. Uh, as a former entertainment editor and movie buff yourself, uh, this is kind of a big uh, hit to the stomach, isn't it? Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I could drive over to the Berkshires and see Tenet, and I have thought about that, but the cooler side of my head, I guess, has prevailed so far. But still, it's big news when the company that really is the major exhibitor of films in the capital region announces that it's going to be shut down indefinitely. Of course, all of these theaters were closed. Theaters across the state remain closed. That, in fact, was cited by Regal in announcing its decision. They essentially put it off on New York government and on Governor Cuomo, 
saying that the refusal to allow theaters to open to say 25% capacity or something like that has made it untenable. Now, in fairness to the governor, beyond the fact that he, of course, argues that putting people in close proximity or even distance proximity in a closed movie theater for, you know, two or three hours at a time isn't the best policy, the movie business would have been up against it anyway, even with 25% capacity, it's very difficult to, to kind of stay afloat. But of course, it's a blow not only to movie fans, but it's a blow to shopping malls, which are, uh, you know, largely open again with all kinds of COVID protocols in place. But movie theaters and malls are a big uh, traffic driver, and it's something else that the retail industry has to grapple with in these difficult days. Well, certainly the retail industry and the entertainment industry are uh, are very, very different than what they were last year. Anyway, thank you, Casey, so much for joining us. As always, you can see, you can read more about all the headlines that we discussed at timesunion.com, and we'll check back in with you next week. A new study estimates that 4,200 children in New York lost a parent or a guardian to COVID-19. That's between March and July. That same study also determines that pandemic job losses thrust more than 300,000 New York children into poverty or near poverty. Times Union health reporter Bethany Bump examined the study in depth, and I asked her about it. So you wrote about this study that has some pretty alarming numbers that came out of it. You know, what caught your eye about it first? Why did you write about it? When this study um, first came out, it was the title in my inbox that immediately caught my eye. Um, That title was that 4,200 children in New York State have lost a parent to COVID-19. That caught my eye for a few reasons. And one is that I think when a lot of us think about COVID-19 and when we think about this pandemic, especially here in New York, where there's just been so much attention paid to nursing homes and all the deaths in nursing homes, I think a lot of us we, we think about this as an old person's disease of old people more likely to die, more likely to be hospitalized. And I think the message that um, we have gotten either indirectly or directly throughout the pandemic is that young people just aren't affected as much. So if you're young, you don't need to worry about it. And we've, you know, I think a lot of us have found that that's not true, first of all. And um, second of all, you know, um, there hasn't been a lot of data just yet on how exactly children are being impacted by this pandemic. So that um, headline stood out to me because we have so much data on like the age of people who have died, but we don't yet know how many of them may have been parents with kids under the age of 18. And so that, that statistic just immediately jumped out to me because it tells you a little bit about the scope of how many people might be impacted by this, and, and also these just extremely young and vulnerable people. So basically, you know, when we think about the COVID-19, you know, COVID-19 and coronavirus, you know, we're thinking, hey, like, how can it affect me illness-wise? But we're not thinking, hey, how can it affect these young people, you know, in other aspects of their life, right? Yeah, and so this study was interesting because it tried to do two things. One, it wanted to look at just the death toll, how many of these deaths might have been parents who left children behind. And then two, it also wanted to look at um, the pandemic's impact on children economically. So obviously we saw staggering job losses and that 
ultimately will end up impacting children if there are children in those households where parents lost a job. So it analyzed those two things. Are people paying attention to this study that you can tell? I mean, are people in New York State government paying attention to it? Is there any any movement there? I mean, I know it just came out, but it's pretty- yeah. I've actually been surprised by how much attention the story has gotten, um, both on social media and also in my inbox. You know, I've gotten some responses from from people who are kind of just floored by, I think, just having that um, statistic in the first place because we haven't had one yet. And I should also note that that number, 4,200, is that's the number through July only. So there's, you know, this pandemic is still going on and there will still be more children who lose parents, but we're currently in a lot of policy and budget making sort of season. And I think a lot of policymakers and lawmakers are hearing from people, hearing from advocates, especially um, child advocates about what they need going forward to help these children who have been impacted not just through the loss of a parent but also you know emotionally mentally um and physically because a lot of these kids are also newly thrust into poverty and that can impact them in a lot of different ways including you know not knowing where their next meal might come from is there anything that this study is missing or that isn't quite uncovering from what you can tell Yeah, so actually the study did make a note to say that they weren't exactly able to analyze the impact that the pandemic may have had on undocumented workers. So parents with kids who are undocumented, those are not statistics that are obviously readily available. They also, you know, they made a note to pay more attention in the study to children who are newly poor, so newly thrust into poverty or near poverty. And they note in their study that, you know, they didn't really look at the compounding effects of this pandemic on families who were already in poverty prior to COVID-19. What happens next? Where do we go next? I mean, with all of this information? Yeah, so I think that there is a lot of focus right now, um, at least from these advocacy groups, they are really trying to get traction when it comes to behavioral health. So Basically, what that means is they want to see more mental health clinics in schools. They want to see more services for children. You know, they want to see um, more of a social safety net. We're, we're at a time when, unfortunately, a lot of governments are, have lost money and they need a lot, of, a lot more money and they're going to have to be making cuts. And so a lot of the advocates are, are really um, pushing for policymakers to, to hold those um, children harmless, to not to not make any cuts that might impact services for children like this. Is there any part of this that isn't bleak? No. no. <laughs> okay. I, I'm okay. sorry to say, I mean, you know, the study was interesting in that it it didn't just talk about the numbers. It, it included in the study what the ripple effects of losing a parent actually mean for society mm-hmm. in terms of cost. So, um, you know, losing a parent is is a traumatic event. And there's just been, you know, a lot of research about the more traumatic events that a child experiences, the more likely they are to have just poor life outcomes in general as an adult. You know, they're, they're more likely to not do as well academically. They're more likely to have lower earnings. They're more likely to end up in jail. They're more likely to experience depression and anxiety. They're more likely to have chronic disease. I mean, the list kind of goes on. And so I think this study was important 
because it gave us a number we didn't have before and because it told us what you know these ripple effects will be going forward if we don't do something now to to help after the break how a local street priest changed the face of addiction recovery in the region Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in his conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Father Peter Young is 90 years old. For more than half his storied lifetime, he's been a street priest, working to create safe spaces in the capital region for men who suffer from alcoholism, addiction, homelessness, or who are ex-inmates trying to get back on their feet after doing time. He's Albany's most iconic priest, fighting for the lives of the downtrodden for decades. But he now faces his own battle with cancer. Times Union religion reporter Linda Edwards sat down with him recently for a story, and I asked her about him. He's led an amazing, remarkable life that could probably be made into, oh, three or four movies at the very least. I cannot picture who would play him. Um, maybe <laughs> Colin Farrell. I mean, I, who is Father Peter Young? Father Peter Young is. Uh, always referred to in Times Union articles as an iconic priest. He's a street priest. That uh, means he was out in uh, what was then a very gritty neighborhood, the South End. He uh, would go into bars and break up fights between drunks. He would uh, counsel prostitutes. He would set up mentoring programs for children. And his home base was St. John's, but he was always out on the street. He uh, became very uh, good friends, actual friendships developed between him and many lawmakers and many governors. He managed to stay friends with Nelson Rockefeller, despite denouncing Rockefeller's draconian drug policies. He um, was one of the pioneers who got Americans nationwide to recognize alcoholism as an illness a disease that needed to be treated rather as something that should be automatically punished or a weakness of character. And he uh, launched maybe two or 300 in-prison rehab programs for inmates, which was very unusual at that time, the 1950s. He also uh, had a life completely unconnected to the priesthood. Uh, before then, he was he was the only white student in Art Mitchell's baseball school. And Art Mitchell was the legendary Negro League manager. 
And he was so impressed with Peter Young that he uh, arranged for him to travel with the teams and play in some of the games. And Father Young was invited to try out for the St. Louis Cardinals, but he chose to go to Siena on a football scholarship instead. He had a beautiful fiance. Yeah, he had like a whole life laid out for him. And then he broke up a fight. Well, no, it was more like an attack of some shipmates when he was in the Navy. He went on shore leave with some shipmates and they attacked a young woman and tried to rape her. He stopped the assault. He got beaten up and his captain uh, talked with him a long time and said, you need to be a priest. We need people like you. We need chaplains like you. And he gave up what could have been a very relaxing life to become a priest. And he is still, he will not stop. He, uh, sadly, uh, found out he has stage four cancer, and he is still volunteering. He's still on the phone. Lori Van Buren and I went over to his home, and he still gets on the phone with people trying to help them, trying to get them into uh, homeless housing, trying to get them a job. He's still at it. He still has a constant stream of visitors coming to his door, and the name of his organization that he launched is the Peter Young housing industry and treatment network and uh skylar Inn is part of it where homeless families go to stay job training rehab most of the network has shrunk to the capital region but at one point it uh sprawled between syracuse and brooklyn and rachel ray had him on her show last year to thank him for all the good work he did in her hometown Glen Falls. So uh, he made a huge impact on hundreds of lives and is still going at it, still still volunteering, still working. He was saying mass in the chapel in downtown Albany until just a couple of weeks ago. So he's very active at the age of 90. Wow, that that must have been really interesting to sit down with him and just kind of talk through all of this. I mean, what did he, what were his thoughts on the pandemic? Like, what was the first thing that he thought to do when all of this happened? Did he give you any insight on that? Yeah, the first thing they thought to do was figure out how to isolate recovering addicts, how to keep them you need to have that group therapy session to uh, go through the treatment program they have laid out. And they want to still have AA meetings, but be safe. They have um, one of the treatment programs in a Schenectady monastery. It's an old uh, monastery that they converted into housing because Father Young's theory is most shelters used to require you to be clean before you got a place inside the shelter. You couldn't show up drunk. You couldn't show up strung out. You had to get clean. But it's impossible to get clean on the street because your life is in chaos. You're in constant physical danger. So the monastery would let them in. Each one of them had a room with a door on it that they could close and a window they could open. You had privacy. You had quiet. You had stability. And you had a rehab program that you had to go through. And you also had a job training program to go through. So you have separate rooms, you have social distancing, and they have figured out how to do rehab. Sometimes they do Zoom meetings with uh, AA, and sometimes they do it in person with everybody six feet apart. 
So he was in, sitting in on every one of those meetings. He retired in 2012, but he still volunteers at every shelter, every site, and probably will, if he, uh, if he can, he probably will for another 10 years if he, uh, you know, I'm hoping his health will uh, allow him to do that. He's in an experimental program that uh, is for people in stage four and he looked great. When Lori and I visited him, he, he lost weight. He said he was back to his high school weight and very proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously he has a very strong faith. But what else keeps him going, you know, motivated to just keep doing what he's doing? That is a really great question because I will tell you, I volunteer for organizations, but I would not do what he did. I couldn't. I, I would not be able to. Alcoholics will break your heart. You know, you invest your heart in them and then they relapse. And he once uh, said that an alcoholic beat him up and his head was, Father Young's head was bandaged and he had a black eye. And the next day the guy said, what happened to you? And he said, you beat me up. You broke a chair over my head. And the guy absolutely did not remember it at all. One of his success stories, who is now a social worker and a family man and a taxpayer, he likes to say we create taxpayers. He asked him that question when he met Father Young in prison. He said, what motivates you? What, uh, why are you bothering to spend time with inmates? And he said, I want to see a fallen man rise again. And I think it's more the belief in redemption than anything else. You know, God's will is a mystery, even for the people who believe in it. And But that experience, that uh, the adrenaline rush, the uh, empowerment that somebody feels when they've got their life under control after years of chaos is, for him, exhilarating. It's exciting. It's dramatic. I think that is really what appeals to him and what, in dark moments, keeps him going. Wow. So he has left a deep imprint on this community for sure. There's no doubt about that. You know, we have such a short time here. We have this gift of time that each of us has. And you do wonder about your legacy. You wonder what you're going to be leaving behind. And he does have a legacy I hope that's some comfort to him because there are a lot of people out there who uh, feel he saved their lives. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back at it next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. As always, in the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or Instagram, or just head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features.